Welcome to Pathfinder Academy. Class is now in session. Here are your professors, Caleb and Christian. Hello, class. You may be seated. Today's lesson is Pathfinder 205, Making Good Encounters. Listen, if you're playing Pathfinder and you're just going through and you're not fighting anybody, I'm not in your game no more, son. I want to fight some stuff. Pathfinder is a system that a lot of the mechanics are based around eventually getting into a fight. And it's just, it's part of the system. It's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But when you play Pathfinder, you should be looking to have encounters in your game. So Paizo has some rules that can help us uh, determine how to make a fair encounter for your party. And let's get right into them. They have something called a challenge rating, which we're going to refer to as a CR from now on. Determine a challenge rating of an encounter. You have to figure out what the average party level is. All you need is some, you know, sixth, maybe seventh grade math where you can just <laughs> add some numbers and divide by the numbers you've added and you get the average party level. Um, Parties are usually all the same level anyway, so it shouldn't be that hard to figure out. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, there is one exception. If you have a group that has six or more players, you're going to add one to their average level. And if your group contains three or fewer players, you subtract one from their average level. The whole CR is kind of designed with the idea of you have four or five PCs. When we talk about in our house rules episode, that's about the number we like to run, three or four. So if you, for example, if your group consists of six players, two of which are fourth level and four of which are fifth level, their APL is sixth, 28 total levels divided by six players, rounding up, which is like one of the only exceptions to the round down rule. And then you add one to the final result because of the number of players. When you have your average party level, you can now figure out what you, how difficult do you want your encounter to be? If you want it to be an average encounter, then the CR number should be the same as your average party level. And if you want it easier, it should be less. Or if you want it challenging or hard, you can have it more. Where do you get this CR number, this magical CR I keep talking about? Well, CR, the challenge rating, is actually in the beast share. You'll see what the CR of each monster is. But even beyond that, you just have the challenge rating. There's a table that you can find on Paizo's PSRD, which is like saying an ATM machine because the P stands for Paizo and the M stands for machine. Uh, <laughs> online for free, you can find uh, this table called Experience Point Awards. And this gives you an XP budget that you can spend for the encounter. So, for example, on this list, a CR10 encounter, you have 9,600 XP to spend. So you look up in the beast area how much XP a monster gives. And you just total up to get around 9,600. So let's say, for example, you want your group of six eight-level PCs to face a challenging encounter against a group of gargoyles, which each have a CR4, and their stone giant boss, which has a CR8. The PCs have an average party level of nine, and the table that I just talked about tells you that a challenging encounter for your APL9 group is a CR10 encounter, because it's just one more. So now you've got 9,600 XP to dole out, according to that table I was talking about. So the Stone Giant is worth 4,800 XP, leaving with you another 4,800 XP left, and you can spend it on the Gargoyles. They're each worth 1,200 each, so you just put four Gargoyles in it, or you could even maybe have three Gargoyles, and then spend the last 1,200 XP on three small Earth Elementals. Whatever you can do, just you spend the XP however you want to spend it. A big thing to remember, and a big mistake a lot of new DMs make, is that CR isn't just that number you see at the top of a monster stat block if you see a cr10 creature you can't be like okay i'll have them fight a couple of these cr10 creatures yeah for an average when you add them together it starts to raise a cr10 creature means that an average party level of nine would find that just one of them challenging right like if you put together a bunch of say cr5s they start to become cr8 cr10 Right. There's a chart called CR equivalencies that you can look up and it, and it helps you see that. So if you have two creatures, say two CR8 creatures, 
their CR isn't 16 now. Their CR is CR plus two. You'll see the according to the chart there. Uh, and it just goes up near uh, an interesting formula. So if you have eight creatures, it's the CR of the creature plus six. Look up the formula, it'll help you figure it out. Uh, monsters are designed with the assumption that they're encountered in their favored terrain. So if you have them in like terrain that's unfavorable, well, then you know that this is not as challenging. Or um, And that means that, say, it's a stone elemental. They can glide through the earth. If they're in the middle of the ocean, it's not going to be as right. high of a challenge to defeat them because they can't slide through the earth. But there are some things that is territory based but not necessarily their home territory if something has blind sight and you encounter an area of complete darkness it's more challenging than it should necessarily be there's an awesome resource in the back of all the books you can see the monsters are listed by cr or the back of the bestiaries and again online on paizo's resource document online for free is you can look up monsters by cr and what happens after you have an awesome encounter for your players and how to reward them? Well, we have a whole episode dedicated to how to reward them. So we're not going to go over like the treasure tables, the treasure tables here. You can go on to that episode and find out how to reward your players. But all the CR can get, uh, maybe it's a little bit too much. And honestly, now at the stage I'm in, I don't use it much. I kind of use it generally to get an idea of how I'm doing my encounter, but I don't do all the math anymore. I wish very hard the when I first started GMing, I paid more attention to it. I would have made less mistakes. But over time, I've learned kind of to how to eyeball it. Yeah, I don't think I should. I'm not sure if I should say this, but I personally have never gone through with the math of any encounter I've made. I've looked at the CRs and made sure they were appropriate and kind of eyeballed it. But there's a lot more to consider than a creature's CR. Right. For instance, if a creature, say, is incorporeal and your team of adventurers has no, say, magical items that can hit an incorporeal creature, even if that's a CR1 creature, your party cannot handle right. that. And you have to consider all the immunities that monsters have. Monsters right. have a lot of immunities, and there's a whole lot to think about when you make an encounter. Right. There, there is. It's good. I really, to me, my mind works really well with the XP budget. You have this much resource, this much experience points to spend. I love that. That helped me design an encounter earlier. Um, and so I really recommend it to anyone new and even experienced players. You can use this. We just have decided not to over time. Without doing this myself, I would not have become as good as I am now because now I get the idea of how to do it. But we talked about having a CR monster. If there's a CR, what was it, uh, eight stone giant? He isn't necessarily going to be challenging for a party of average eighth level because he is one guy. Any encounter with just one guy, I'm sorry, I should, I should say many encounters with just one guy can be heavily influenced in the favor of the party because of several reasons. One, they, they're going to get, say, a party of five players. They get five players worth of turns to his to the boss's one and especially if he loses on the initiative and everyone goes ahead of him you could wipe him out before he gets off one spell or one anything he's going to do one action he will simply lose by default just through action economy mm -hmm. now i still do sometimes that happens in my campaign naturally um just say they surprise some dude because they really disliked him they just like the shopkeeper that ripped him off so they surprise him he's one guy don't even surprise him. they just decide to beat him up what is he gonna do <laughs> this guy's gonna get crushed uh or if some idiot picks a fight with a party whatever that happens once in a while but when i'm trying to design an encounter for fun i certainly have to take into consideration this fact inherently just having one single enemy being its own encounter is going to probably be a problem because there's really only 
getting the perfect balance is going to be almost impossible because either they're going to be too weak and they're just going to get crushed by the party or then yet so then you have to start buffing them you have to start buffing them you're like how am i going to make one person strong enough to actually pose a challenge to five six seven people and at that point they're going to become so strong that the party basically can't do anything about them without losing a couple players there are a few choice exceptions to this rule things that are designed to be one-on-one encounters things like dragons uh super high cr creatures like cthulhu or the more well-known tarask these things are designed like uh it's crazy hard i don't care if there's five super gigantic crocodiles coming after me as well this one big thing is the thing that's the problem but generally christian is absolutely right so we're gonna go over a couple of things that we have decided can help kind of fix this and things that we have done in the past that kind of help out one is you can put that boss at the end of a gambit I had players go through a, a clockwork factory and they had to go through the whole thing and to get to the end uh, to, to plant a bomb in this one room. And when they were planting a bomb in the room, a clockwork leviathan kind of like activated and they had to fight it. It was just a leviathan, but they had been worn down through the process of the dungeon. They A lot of spells have been used up and stuff like that. Some of their HP have been gone. Some of their healing items have already been used. So now, even though it's just one boss... They don't have all the tools they would normally have, so it became challenging. And what Caleb is touching on is actually an intentional way Pathfinder is designed. You're not supposed to have one fight a day. You're supposed to slowly expend the player's resources over a series of encounters throughout the day. Right. And you can overuse this and underuse it. You have to, you have, to have a good GM judgment of if they have a gambit every day, they're going to like, you're going to get tired yeah. of it. I always, you always need variety and whatever you do. Uh, but something I do, my, my main way to fix this is if I have a person fight one guy as a boss, I make unique bosses that go beyond the rules of Pathfinder. I made a thing, a uh, crystalline death machine. It's just this big machine, right? and it had different areas you could target it and it, instead of having an hp it was a three hit kill so let me go further into this. he's a guy in a big machine right the machine has two arms that have cannons on them right it has two jetpack like two engines a jetpack and it had uh, a missile pod on each shoulder for a total of six things that they could shoot at and each of those things had hp and depending on what you shot at would disable one of his offensive abilities. Uh, so if you shot out his cannon arm, he can't do his direct damage attack. If you shot his missile pack on his shoulder, he can't do his splash damage missile attack. If you shot his jetpack, he had to land and no longer could he fly and maneuver. And the way it worked was for every two things you killed, his his uh, cockpit would, would fail and open up and you could attack the guy inside. And then it would close and then you killed another two, it would open up. You killed another two and open up. So after you attacked him three times, he would die. That's totally not the way Pathfinder works. But I'm using the rules on the combat of Pathfinder. The parts have HP. Uh, it's still doing damage and stats and all that stuff. But it's just a little bit different. And it made him tough uh, to beat. And he wasn't taking all his attacks on one turn. I kind of treated each weapon as its own initiative. And my players reacted very favorably towards it. I do something similar. Not that I design completely unique bosses. But if I want the players to fight just one singular person... I cheat. <laughs> and not to say that I make the person stronger, I say something that doesn't, is that I will add in mechanics to the fight that are secondary to the actual thing they were fighting. For example, recently my players were in a very wacky campaign. Caleb, you were in this. You'll remember this fight. And they were fighting a rabbit that wanted to have a battle with them. Right. And it was just one person that wasn't going to be particularly challenging. 
So what I did is I had the environment start doing stuff because the environment was actually alive and I not revealed to the players the environment had two little spots on the initiative that it would act. So they would go to attack the rabbit and say branches would grow into their face or the ground would try to trip them or something like that. There's no explicit rules for what I did but it fit for the encounter, it wasn't unfair to the players, and it made the combat more fun in general because there was more things to do than just beat up the one guy. Right. Yeah, we couldn't just pounce on him. Pun intended. The next boss i want to go over is going to be a spoiler for trailblazers so i'm going to give you like five seconds to, to skip maybe five minutes ahead if you don't want that spoiler you gone all right one of my favorite bosses i ever made was mr freeze he uh being a smart guy i had him kind of like lure the party into a room that he kind of had designed or picked out knowing that he would have an advantage in and when they fought him it was another i guess i do this a lot it was another three hit kill didn't matter the amount of damage you did you just had to hit him three times but you could only damage him from the back his suit would protect him everywhere else against all weaponry they had so if they didn't hit him from behind uh it wouldn't hurt him this is completely against paizo paizo doesn't do a facing everyone's always a square never a rectangle in size because they don't want to deal with facing. That was more of a Dungeons and Dragons thing, sneak attacks if you were behind with rogues and stuff in Pathfinder. It's just like flanking. They didn't want to have to deal with facing at all in Pathfinder. But anyway, so I made it in this thing. You knew which way he was facing. And the room was designed in such a way as walls. Usually when you draw a wall on a mat, it usually is a one square. It is a you know one by one, and you draw that, and it takes up a whole square. I instead just did the border of squares. That was the line. So it kind of made the, the battlefield a little easier to maneuver. You know, See in a second again why I did that. Uh, every time they hit him, he would adapt his tactics, which I again try to take the flavor of Mr. Freeze, an intelligent man, would adapt to his surroundings in the encounter. So the first time they hit him, like sneaking out in the dark and getting behind him and shooting him or stabbing him, he would then let out these little sensors that would fly around to try to find them so that he wouldn't be surprised again. And he would also, now that he has these sensors, he would know where you are. And since the walls were so thin, if he, he would know where you are, go on the other side of the wall than you and break through the wall and pull you out and attack you that way. And then if you hit him a second time, he would start using his gun to freeze the floor to make it difficult terrain. And if at any point somebody attacked him and missed, he would make a little wall right behind him so that you couldn't hit from there again. And you had to go find another way, another angle to hit him. And the, the terrain itself, like I said earlier with him pulling through the wall, w uh, played a part in the battle. If they, there's a, like a catwalk rafters, and if somebody attacked him from the rafters, he would freeze the rafters and it would fall and break so that you couldn't use them again. And so, again, it was just one guy against a party, but because of these unique rules, it was fun and it was uh, fair. I think an important thing to take away from that, or one of the most important things to take away from that, is that the it was all important, Christian. But telling you, what's one of the <laughs> the best encounters never happen in a flat square room. Mm -hmm. The environment plays a huge factor into an encounter. Yeah, absolutely. Terrain plays a big role, not only in boss encounters, but in any encounter you have. Make the uh, terrain interesting. I've made the terrain interesting and the players just didn't happen to use it and other times did use it. So sometimes be prepared. Oh, they didn't use the cannon that I had just <laughs> laying there for no reason or, or the height advantage. They use other ways. Constantly, my players outthink me. They think of ways to use the ter terrain I never thought of. So I like to put as many things in there that even I'm like, I don't know why this pot in the corner probably won't do anything, but they think of a way. So I like to put things there just in case they think of it uh i had an encounter um with a red dragon and he his the terrain was in a mountain 
And the reason I did that is so that he could use his breath to melt rocks and make and adapt the terrain to his advantage. He could make it now as a big pool of lava or magma as it is. It's still in the mountain. Another thing I did with terrain was uh, I had a, a boss, uh, Zon Kuthon. There was a point where my players had to go kill a bunch of gods and Zon Kuthon was one of them. In the battle with him, he was in the center on a throne and there was like a mist on the floor all around him and say maybe a 20 foot radius, maybe 30 feet radius. And what it was is eventually like, if you blow the dust away or find out in every way, there's a pit underneath him with just like one path to get to him. And so you had to figure out how to get to that path to actually get up to him and hurt him. I think how they figured it out, somebody used a summon monster spell and they told the monster, go kill that guy. And the monster would got up to like the edge of the smoke and like was like, like start walking around. And they were yelling at the monster like, no, go right, go forward, go straight. <laughs> and they later and like, oh, wait a second. And they figured out that he's actually just taking the only available path. And there's a couple like fake paths. Like if you start going, they, they dead end and they don't get quite to him. And so that way they directly knew which one made it to him because I forget which, which elemental it was, but it had sight able to see through the mist. And so in that way, the territory kind of played a, a, a role. You don't even have to have a specific idea for the environment that you're creating in an encounter. If you just say there's a ledge somewhere, the, some of the players will probably think it's really important for no other reason than you've bothered to describe it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's true. And you know what? There's there's a lot of classes. Or there's some classes that get advantages or they can take feats or things for the terrain. Rangers, uh, druids get wild walk or whatever it's called where you can walk through the forest, forest stride, something stride. Uh, Woodland. So, Woodland stride. That's it. So if you have a terrain where it's just like there's some thorns here and it's difficult terrain, you're you're going to reward your player or at least let him use one of his abilities. Oh, well, I'll just go through. It's not going to bother me. I had another, I guess, another boss. He had a, another god he had to kill. Elma Day had this room that had all these pillars and they were like in a, in a grid pattern it's like what are these pillars okay who cares obviously they're gonna do something like scale described them but i don't know what they're gonna do they look plain <laughs> he described them guys get to write it down uh in between the pillars were invisible wall uh walls of force and so it was a maze and in our episode uh pre-maids versus homebrew I'll explain more about this maze because it's like the one example of a good maze that I'd ever done. I failed. Guys, I've tried to make mazes and each time it was the worst, like the literal worst. I finally made a good one. Uh, but the idea there was they had to find their way through the maze, through this uh, this force wall maze to get to her. And if they could just get to her, it wouldn't have been as fun of a fight. But that that's terrain. Uh, very important no matter what you do, boss, or a regular encounter. One other unique boss I made to fix... The idea that you can't just have one person. Uh, the assassin siblings. I had two siblings, um, and they fought them separately. One got a move action after every player's standard action. So if they attacked, they did. Even if it was a four-round attack, the first attack they did after they succeeded or failed or resolved, she could move. So she could hop over with acrobatics check or move aside, and so dynamically she would constantly be able to change uh, where she was in the battle, and that would change everybody's. Uh, actions and allowed her to not just be like oh she's surrounded she gets obliterated <laughs> by five full actions full round attacks in a row and the other assassin sibling uh he he had a potion of invisibility he would fight them uh back up drink the potion and he would um heal himself get behind him stab uh, and then um cast i think um inflict like serious wounds or something then go back up drink a potion heal up so they had to try to figure out 
How do we get him stop him from being invisible or set up such a way that we can just blast him down when he appears? And it was supposed to be like a long, drawn-out battle. It was supposed to just like figure it out. And that's what they did. They all like took prepared action. So when he appeared, they just destroyed him real quick. And what you mentioned with the full round actions is it's important to avoid. Uh, you don't want fights to ever just become slugfest where it's just full round action after full round action. Mm-hmm. It's okay for some fights to end up like that depending on what they're fighting. But for the most part, it's not very interesting if you're just, okay, one, attack one, attack two, attack three, your turn. Attack one, attack two, right, attack right. three. Definitely. You want to make it interesting. So let's talk about what kind of encounters we can have. Uh, in, in my opinion, there are three types of encounters. There's the kill all monsters encounter. There's the get to a location encounter. And there's the accomplish objective encounter. Kill all monsters is the standard dungeon crawl. Get into the crypt. Kill all the skeletons. You win. Right. Uh, that one I'm not going to give examples of because there's a million examples. You'll, you'll have it every time you play. Get to a location uh, encounter. This is the kind of thing where maybe you can't win. You can't kill out. You can't kill all the things that are there. You just have to get out or just get to a safe space. Maybe it's just thing and you're on a sacred ground. But if you can get to the end, if you just get that lamp and then quickly get out of the cave of wonders before everything turns to lava, you win. Right. Uh, I had one battle where they were kind of in a war zone. They're obviously not going to win a war all by themselves. So in a big battle and this big monster called a regenerator shows up, a regenerator, you can beat the crap out of it, but it just regenerates. And so they had to kind of like, you know, slow down the monster, beat him up enough that he takes time to regenerate. They can try to back out, deal with some of the orcs that were fighting them. And they just had to try to get out of the the fort and let the army kind of deal with it um, before they were overwhelmed and died. And then there's the accomplish objective one. This is where there's something to do that will essentially end the encounter or it's why you were even there, why you even faced an encounter in the first place. For an example of this one that I've kind of thought about doing have yet to do is in a game called Quake that you might have heard of. A lot of people uh, know it as like a, a, a birthed esports kind of in a way. Uh, they they ported it to the N64 because people did that a lot for whatever reason. And one of the bosses in there was this like lava creature. It's like, how oh, you, you can't kill lava? It had like <laughs> these pillars that came down with electricity. You stepped on a button, one pillar came down. You step on another button on the other side of the room, a, bu- a pillar came down. And there's another button on the far side of the room. You click it, electricity comes in between. Oh no, you've you've done damage to the lava monster so it could be interesting a creature that you can't kill you have to go to hit the pillars to kill a thing that'd be an interesting thing i'm probably gonna make an encounter like that at some point another interesting uh, objective is a holdout i think the number one feedback i ever got from an encounter not a boss battle but just a normal encounter was a holdout a wave would come and then they would get a few minutes after they defeated the wave to kind of restock or heal or do whatever they're going to do. And then another wave would come and they had to last for like three or four waves before uh, help arrived. And my players really like that and I, I need to do it more often. I haven't gotten a better response to an encounter than that one. For some reason, the players really, really, really liked it. And of course, each time like a, a new interesting thing, like the first time was just a bunch of orcs. Next time was orcs and then like one big ogre. And then like the third time it was... I forget, maybe it's like some guy with a kamikaze thing, whatever. Just it kept upping the stakes. I would love to see and have yet to see like a King of the Hill kind of encounter where you just have to hold this area for 10 rounds. Not even consecutive, just like 10 total rounds and you win. Don't let the opponent hold it for 10 rounds or whatever. There's something like that in Rise of the Ruin Lords that my players are about to face. Um, uh-huh. Slight spoilers, so uh, it's very late in the campaign, so um, it's a, it's light spoilers. So if you're going to play Rise of the Ruin Lords or in Rise of the Ruin Lords, you might want to skip ahead a little bit. But they're in a cabin in up in the mountains, very high in the mountains. In the woods? No. Oh. It's on top of like a snowy mountain. That's the worst. Okay. And like 
they're investigating it and they're finding out some weird stuff happened. A lot of cannibalism here. And it turns out there's a Wendigo, which is, you know what that is? Yes, it's a crazy, crazy thing. Anyone who's listened to the first uh, chapter of Trailblazers knows exactly where the Wendigo is. Or as my players call it, the Winnebago. <laughs> so in the book, they actually outline that like they don't want it to be a slugfest because the Wendigo is supposed to be this terrifying presence. And it's right. not supposed to be like, oh, well, it's going to full round action you and you're going to full round action. They want it to be like this psychotic experiment. Yeah. They want it to be like a really terrifying, horrifying thing. So they actually outline that it has tactics and it will actually siege the cabin they're in. It'll break some walls. It'll stalk them around. It'll try and cast a nightmare on some of them, but it won't actually engage in an open fight with them. Hmm. So that's kind of like King of the Hill because they kind of want to survive in the cabin because they have to. Right. Because if they go out into the snow, they're either going to freeze to death or the Wendigo is going to kill them. Right. That's very interesting. Wendigos are just like soul-crushingly hard to kill. Yeah. They're crazy. And they for people who don't know, a Wendigo, if it kills you, it, after a little bit, you turn to a Wendigo. It's not like, oh, now we have two Wendigos to deal with. Except it doesn't just kill you. It grabs you and then flies up into the sky. It runs so, into the sky. So fast that your legs burn off. Yeah. <laughs> Wendigos are nasty things. They look nasty. They look terrifying. They're, they're similar to every scene like that satanic like goat head thing. It's kind of like that. They're just absolutely horrifying and hard to kill and very high CR. Now, boss battles... Dealing with a boss battle, there's a couple categories of boss battles as well. There's a boss with underlings. Uh, this is your standard boss. I think like in any, any, I'm sure in any written adventure you could tell me, I'm sure they have several. I'm sure the first boss is always a boss with underlings. I can think of very few solo single bosses right. in pre-made adventures. And when they are, they're usually insanely powerful. Like they're edging on TPK kind of stuff. The culmination of my first season, uh, they fought the emperor and the emperor in his throne room had, you know, like the Praetorian guard with him. He had a dragon with him, a sorcerer. And so they had to fight all those guys and then, you know, to eventually kill the emperor. Uh, the single boss boss battle, which we just talked about a second ago and how to deal with that and how to make that interesting. But I actually like to have a mechanic no matter what I do with my boss, some interesting mechanic. For example, I was talking about Kuthon earlier and how they had to kind of try to get to him. The big mechanic of his fight actually was these big crystals in the room. And every once in a while, he would, uh, two crystals would grow, glow, they would grow, <laughs> two crystal, two crystals would glow, and then after they glowed, they would clerk people. Two crystals would glow. And you'd be a whole round, so you have a round to know that that's happening. And then the next round, electricity or some sort of energy would connect between the two of them. And anything that was standing in between the two would get damaged. I forget the damage now. It's been so long, but it was significant. And, of course, I showed it to them, like, before the encounter happened, so they knew it was happening. They weren't just surprised all of a sudden. Um, they knew try to get out of the way of it. And so they had a round to get out of the way to choose, do I attack or do whatever I want to do? Or do I just spend my time moving to not get caught up in this trap? Meanwhile, I'm fighting angels in Zonkuthon. This And this goes back to what I was saying earlier, where I think it's okay to cheat, just have stuff in the environment, quote-unquote mechanics that aren't supposedly that aren't exactly in the rules but they make the fight more interesting i had my players fight um basically this long dead king him and his whole kingdom had basically turned to sand and he was basically a floating thing of sand with a bunch of swords around him and they fought him in this big throne room which just had a throne of sand and then the rest of the room was sand so to make the fight more interesting since it was just one person he would manipulate the sand as time would go on either sinkholes would appear or sand would push up from below them almost like a geyser of air and shoot them into the air and it would change the environment over time that's cool sandwood is that from like a certain kind of tree sandwood launched them in the air never mind i'm making a dumb joke <laughs> 
I'm not gonna give it to you. <laughs> That's fine. And like quicksand would appear, so they had to avoid that over time. Cool, I like that. When my players fought Saren Ray, they had to uh, he they fought her in like her own little like dimension. She was floating in in the in the on the plane. What's the plane of air? And it was just like this crystal glass thing platform floating up there. And there was these two big crystals floating on the on the glass platform. And every once in a while, light would fill them, and out would come light elementals, which was a custom beast I made. Forget about it; doesn't matter. But two enemies would come out, and then if you killed them later on, two more would come. And so if you just sat there, you would eventually lose because there's an infinite amount of light elementals that are going to try to kill you. So you had to try to kill Saren Ray. But at the same time, these light elementals weren't pushovers. You had to deal with them, and if you left them alone, they could like merge together, become an even a bigger threat. So they had to they had to make good decisions about how to deal with the light elementals how much time to put towards them and how much time to put towards her and eventually they figured out maybe we can try to break these crystals and they thought that kind of way that was a that was a mechanic of the battle these two crystals people who listen to trailblazers another spoiler alert for the end of uh chapter one you gone good didn't want you here anyway and you'll never know that because you left oh i love you all so much uh when they fought the lich he had a mechanic where most liches they have, I should say all liches, except when Caleb gets his dirty hands into the, the bestiary, uh, have a phylactery which resurrects them in like one to one D four weeks or whatever. But this lich resurrected uh, every two rounds and his phylactery was in the battlefield. And the goal was to go destroy the phylactery. Otherwise, he just infinite respawned. And uh, another mechanic was after the first TPK of that battle, an angel came from heaven and resurrected them all. And that was kind of part of the story and stuff. But what this allowed me to do was allowed me to explain, A, that the freaking lich is a powerful thing you don't want to mess with. Like you have an idea. He has a thing where he can touch you and you're paralyzed forever. Have fun. And in, in addition, you kind of wasted some of the super more powerful spells. Because the lich was a higher CR than my players were supposed to handle. But when he used his one once a day abilities... And they all resurrected. Some of that stuff was gone, so it made it a little easier. And so it allowed them to see what the mechanic was of the battle without me saying, so here's the mechanic, guys. He's going to come back from the dead. Oh, you got to kill his crystal. You know, they they, they dynamically figured out the time it took them to figure out they all died, but then they came back and they had all now they were fresh eyes. They knew what to do. Previous times I've had I've I've just stated the mechanic because this isn't a video game. You don't have the chance of, oh, well, now I know how this boss works. I'm dead. I'll, I'll just reload the last save, and now I know how he works, and I have I have the knowledge of I know how this encounter works. You don't have that in this game unless you do a stupid thing like an angel comes and brings it right back to life like I did. Uh, so like with Mr. Freeze, I outright told everybody, you know, you can't hit him from the front. You have to hit him or from any direction but the back. I outright told them that. I didn't tell them the three hits thing. I just told them. And with the, the crystalline death machine thing, I told my players the same thing. He takes three hits. Um, his cockpit opens up after every every two pieces you kill. I had to tell him that outright, but you would be surprised how it doesn't really ruin too much immersion. But where you can kind of try to fit it into the story, like I did with the angel and the lich, I thought it ended up being an elegant solution to that problem. So I got a question for you, Christian. This is something that that I have a problem with. How do you handle dragon battles? Because dragons are super powerful and they can fly. Mm -hmm. Not with a fly spell that runs out, but with the wings. And I always handle my dragons by just like making that a non-issue. Uh, the first dragon they ever fought uh, was in like an enclosed building, and so it, flying wasn't that big of a deal. It flew a little bit, but it wasn't 500 million feet in the air and dropping them to their deaths. 
Uh, and another dragon they fought was in a mountain, so flying again wasn't a big problem. Another one, a white dragon they fought, had its wings clipped, so it wasn't flying. Uh, another dragon they fought, they had griffins, so they were flying while it was flying. So the flying has always been a non-issue. How do you deal with that? Well, the first thing is that when my players fight dragons, they are higher CR creatures. By the time they reach that level, I usually make sure they have some way of accessing flight. Not all of them, per se, but at least maybe the sorcerer can know as a fly spell. Maybe someone has an item or a potion. I make sure not everyone's just going to be sitting on the ground like, oh, man, wish I could join the battle. <laughs> but the way I handle That'd be cool. dragon battles is actually something that... I use in almost all my encounters, and it doesn't make as much sense for dragons, but have them not fight 100% optimally. When you see a stat block for a beast, you can look at it and be like, okay, this is clearly its most powerful attack. This is clearly what he would like use 99% of the time to open the fight. Just fly that, around all the time and breathe fire down every 1d4 rounds. Right. Doesn't mean they should do that. It doesn't mean that will make an interesting fight. Uh, the last dragon I remember having my players fight, he did his generic opening with uh, breath. It was ice. He did an ice breath thing. Some people had ways of dealing with that. He didn't specifically aim it so he could hit everyone at once. Maybe one or two people weren't specifically in the cone. Okay. After fighting for a bit, you know, like I said, you don't want it to be a slugfest. So although he did eventually do a full round action on someone, he got within range to do that. He didn't stay there and just do it back and forth. There was a gunslinger in the party, and she was doing the most damage because dragons have absolutely no touch AC at all. We're talking like six or seven touch AC because they're giant creatures with no decks. So he's like, okay, this person's the most threat. And then my decision from there was, okay, do I outright kill them, which the dragon has the potential to do? Mm -hmm. I could just walk over to her in full round action with her, but where's the fun in that? So instead, what I had him do is make a flyby attack, and as part of that flyby attack, make a grapple maneuver. Now he grabbed the gunslinger and started flying up with her, and now everyone had a full round to think about how to approach that situation. What did they do? That's like a tough thing. I wouldn't know what to do. I'm trying to remember exactly how they got her out. Like, I don't know if I thought, like, enough damage would do it or they might have cast grease on her or something like that. I forget how they got her out. What do you do to get a dragon down from the air? Uh, well, Gunslinger specifically has that thing where they can shoot the wings. Okay, yeah. That's, that's one thing. Because that's my biggest problem. I mean, you, they don't have... That's why I said I had to make sure that people have access to flying. My only dragon that ever flew that my party fought, they almost had a TPK, and in the end, the dragon lived through the battle. It's a tough thing. Yeah, no, that... That actually happened. They fought a dragon earlier, and they were kicking its butt. So he was like, okay, I'm going to fly 800 feet in that direction. Good luck catching up to me. Right. And it stalked them. For weeks, it stalked them. Cool. It was just flying cool. away. That dragons are highly intelligent, and they're actually supposed to be like that. So it's okay that they're flying in a threat because that's what they do. Right. But like I said, make sure your players have the tools to deal with it if they do do that. They're not pushovers. Right. At least generally. You can, you can of course, make your game pushover. That's what you want to flavor it. But generally, they're not supposed to be pushovers. I would love to hear your guys's input please throw an email at us at tblazernetwork at gmail.com how do you run dragon battles i'd be really interested to hear that part of that philosophy i was talking about is that sometimes we'll have enemies make combat maneuvers that they're not trained in but they make sense for the situation they make sense for the fight and they might make the fight more interesting someone might try a steel maneuver someone might try a dirty trick maneuver uh, in the middle of combat even though they're not trained in it that way it's not just a slugfest back and forth okay all right, next up, let's talk about how to deal with an encounter when it goes bad right after this message from us, who is our own sponsors. Welcome, everyone, to today's game show. Last we left off, you had control of the board. David, go ahead and pick a category. I'll take weak spots for 600, Caleb. I already told you that isn't the category. In that case, I'll take things that don't fit in castles for 400. All right, for $400, here's the answer. This massive thing won't fit into a castle. Dom. 
What is a dragon? That is correct. All right, we surveyed 100 people. Top five answers are on the board. We come across an obviously important character who I've spent hours preparing as a critical pivot point to the story. What do you do? Yes, David. I shoot him in the face. That is correct. And that means you have reached the million dollar question. Here we go. David, for a million dollars, this podcast is an entertaining podcast where a couple of friends get together, hang out, and play the tabletop RPG Pathfinder together. Is it A, the Trailblazers actual play podcast? B, Pathfinder Academy, an informative podcast about the same game? C, the Trailblazer Network on iTunes where you can find both of these shows and more? Or D, more information on our website at tblazer.net? I don't know, that's a tough one. I'd like to phone a friend. All right, let's get Dom on the line. Dom, I'm stuck here. Can you help me out? I sure can. The answer's A, the Trailblazers podcast. Is that your final answer? Yes, A, the Trailblazers podcast. That's correct! And everyone's a winner because everyone can listen to the Trailblazers podcast every Tuesday right here on the Trailblazer Network. Because the only thing nerdier than playing RPGs is listening to shows about people playing RPGs. All right, how do you deal with an encounter that goes bad? In my opinion, there's a few ways you can deal with this. One is you could say, I'm sorry, I'll fix this later. This is one of the most mature things you can do. A battle starts going real bad and you go, I'm sorry guys, I made a mistake. This is actually way harder than it should be and it's crushing you guys, I'm sorry. Uh, If a battle's too easy, that one you can just let go through and make it happen with the story. You might... I, I don't know if I'd ever do this, but you have the option if it's supposed to be like big old boss battle that goes super easy saying we need to come back to this. But generally you reserve this. An encounter goes bad when your party's losing and they're doing everything right. You just made the encounter too hard. You have five giants when they can only handle one dra- giant with their CR. Another thing you could do is say sorry. Here's a few things to make it better. I did this on Trailblazers when David and the party fought the Horned Men. Uh, David died. He got to negative con score. But one guy had like a, a potion of healing the next turn and gave it to him. I allowed the potion of healing to work even though it's against rules as written because I realized I had made the encounter a little bit too hard for the party at level they were. And afterwards, after we hit end on the recording, I said to the guys, sorry, that encounter was not your fault. That was my fault. It was too difficult. You guys actually did things right. My apologies. Uh, third kind of bad encounter is the encounter wasn't bad, but the players did not handle it well, and it resulted in some serious consequences. Uh, the best thing you can do there is just kind of help your players learn. If everyone's just walking away really upset and they think that the encounter was the problem, then they're going to make the same mistake again. Uh, this one's a tough one because this becomes like everyone's going to start getting defensive. Uh, the goal of this here is to make sure that your players don't make the same mistake again. So it's tough. You got to be gentle and you got to say, well, maybe you could have done this, maybe you could have done this. A lot of times you got to do this at the next session. Everyone's going to be too hot to do it on that session. I mean, sometimes your players will just forget they have certain abilities and you'll oh, yeah. make a fight and be like, oh, they'll just do this, right? And then they completely won't do that one thing that 
trumps the encounter and it will end up being a really hard encounter for it and you have to you have to just tell them afterwards like hey you could have just done this right i remember one of my players got really upset because an enemy they were fighting had either levels in monk or improved on arm strike and they had the ability to deflect arrows which means just once around you can stop uh any range attack from hitting you no check needed just the first range attack in a round you just kind of smack out of the air Right, yeah. And that completely nickered the gunslinger. Because <laughs> it, it did work with ammunition and the way yeah. I flavored the character. It it wasn't like they were Neo. It was like a monster kind of thing that I was describing that they were stopping the bullets. And they got really upset. But I was thinking in my head the whole time, you got a shotgun, just use the scatter shot. <laughs> right. And he can't do that. But instead, they kept making like single attacks against oh, him. Man. And I was like, I can't do anything about that. Right. I mean, but they, I mean, that made it seem like a really powerful person in their eyes. There's some things like a, a basilisk. It turns, it's a very early CR creature that can turn you to stone, has flesh to stone just by looking at it. You're probably be like, what are we supposed to do now? Stone will never get them unfixed. But there's a built-in thing to fix that. If you use its blood and cover the stone with blood, it turns back to flesh. Oh, some things aren't as bad as you might first think it is. I just remembered some. As long as your DM's on jerk, there's usually a way to progress forward. There's yeah. usually some way out of the situation you're in. And remember, running's always an option. And that's where it comes in. You, if if there isn't a way and it's your fault, you got to admit it. And that, that keeps that trust with right. your players. Now, the fourth one, and the one I probably do the most often, is to dynamically change the battle behind the scenes. There's a reason you have a GM screen. Uh, Christian, I think you had an example about goblins. I mentioned the specific mistake GM's making where CR3 means that, hey, we can put a bunch of CR3s and that will fight a level 3 party, right? When I first started GMing, I didn't realize that's not how it worked, and I had a bunch of CR3 goblins fighting the uh, average party at level 3. And I was like, oh, it's just a bunch of goblins, it's not a big deal, right? And they had, like, way too many hit points, and nothing right. was dying, and it was, the <laughs> battle was like a reclaw. I was like, oops, um, I didn't tell them out loud, but I was like, okay, so now these are all CR one half goblins, <laughs> and then everything started dying. All of a sudden, everything's health has now went from 25 to 5. I did explain to them later, like, why suddenly the dynamic of the fight changed. But in the right. middle, I realized, like, oh, this... This is way too much. There's no way they can handle. It was like eight CR3 goblins against an average party level right. three. It was ridiculous. Uh, I I I had one that kind of like was the epitome. And when I really learned my lesson about changing uh, things behind the scenes in the middle of an encounter, and the and the poster child for that was uh, a white dragon fight. I mentioned they fought a dragon whose wings were clipped by its master. The whole idea of that was a for me to not have to deal with flying, and b them to be like scared of the master. Like oh my gosh. The big bad guy is so powerful. He just said he just like clipped a dragon's wings and it was okay with it. Like, oh my gosh. Uh, but in the battle, they uh, two things became uh, clear. And we'll take each one in kind. First thing that became clear was that its AC was higher than the PCs could hit most of the time. Its given AC was 30. Most of the PCs were missing. And if they hit, it was generally only once. Without any real spellcasters in the party and no cleric, I modified the dragon. I made its AC go from 30... To 30. Uh, uh, that makes no sense. Well, hey, listen, I broke it down. Normally, the way it's given in the book, it's 10 plus 1 dex plus 20 natural minus 1 size. But I changed it to be 5 plus 1 dex plus 20 natural minus 1 size plus 5 armor. And this unique party composition could better use their skills to take it down because they could reduce that 5 armor. I gave uh, the armor on this dragon. Uh, they had previously fought clockwork things, and this dragon had killed clockwork and made armor out of an old clockwork dragon. It was a white dragon wearing clockwork dragon as armor. Uh, so the armor was cobbled together and had four quote-unquote weak points. This is kind of back to your little uh, mechanic of a battle. Uh, 
Two of them could be hit from the ground and two needed range or a successful climb check to get up and get to them. And if they were hit, the players could reduce the dragon's AC to 25, getting rid of that plus five armor bonus. And I wanted the players to have an incentive to hit each of the armor weak points, not just one. Hit one, then everybody just focus this one thing. Uh, if you attacked any non-armored part of the dragon, say you broke off one piece of armor, uh, one of the weak points, uh, it would require a called shot minus five. So pretty much it's a wash. You didn't get anything for just killing one of the pieces of armor. Um, but if both, if, if two, if both, if both weak points on one side of the dragon have been hit, then the attacks would no longer be called shots for that side, rewarding the player for destroying two spots on one side. And there'd be, be a ground and a climb or range one on each side. So they couldn't, it's not just two ground on one side and two range on the other. Uh, if the party destroyed the other two spots on its other side, the party would no longer need to stay on its unarmored side to get that 25 ac they had a they had to stick to one side of them now there that way there was a reward for killing each of the points no matter how many decided to kill above one uh there was a reward for it and that gave the players an opportunity to strategize and to be rewarded for their strategy now the second problem was it died before i wanted it to <laughs> i had for story reasons i needed it to escape uh so this is a very dangerous ground to tread uh, changing a monster's AC shortly after the fight starts is okay in my opinion. Changing a monster's max health at the end of the battle generally is not. But if you make the right decisions and do it fairly, you'll be able to get away by having both your story and the player's level of fun intact. The dragon was brought to negative hit points and several more players still had their turn before it had another, so it wasn't going to be running away. Uh, I then let the players continue to have their turns and attack it up until its next turn because, like I said, I needed to run away. When its turn came around, it had negative 63 at of its original 172 health points kind of dead i don't i don't think it had a 63 con <laughs> uh but when i looked at how the hp was determined uh for a monster they do the average so for the dragon its hp is 15 d12 plus 75 uh the game gives you the health as if the dragon rolled a six and a seven and a six and a seven so forth until all the hit dice are rolled that's like how they do their average so in this case six sixes were rolled and seven sevens were rolled so it was 172 which is, that's its max health, which is 97 plus the 75. If the dragon was to roll all 12s, its health, the max, would actually be 255. 180 plus 75. So I instead just gave the dragon max HP, which changed it from having a negative 63 to a 20. I think this was justifiable because the monster had no wings, which took away some of, you know, the challenge. It, one of the major advantages the dragon has. Uh, the problem occurs in the fact that I did this at the end of the battle instead of before it began. If you get decide to give a dragon max health or any creature you make a max health at the beginning, it doesn't matter. But since the players were not privy to the dragon's health at any point, the time the hit dice were determined mean, meant nothing to them. If I had changed it before or during the battle, they would never know and it doesn't affect the results differently in any way. If they somehow did know its HP at some point, I don't know, you had an uh, is there some sort of spell that like lets you know exactly how close it is from death? There's one that tells you like dead, dying. Gotcha. All right. So if in some way they did determine it, uh, then changing it would have been unfair and unfun. Like, oh man, it's almost dead. <clears throat> it's um, it feels really good right now. <laughs> don't know where that came from. Whereas number one, the first thing that had a, the AC blatantly broke the rules to lower its AC. Uh, the the second thing, the HP did follow rules as written. I gave it the max HP it possibly could have. Uh, both are okay methods, as long as the result is fun fair and a satisfying boss battle it feels like it was won because the players strategized and worked together and that could have been lost if they hadn't 
if the dragon was brought below 255, probably would have killed it. And the effects and story aren't something I couldn't get over. A lot of cool things and interesting things happen when things go unexpectedly. Maybe the players would have like interrogated him while he was dying and gotten a piece of information or or anything I couldn't expect could have happened. And so I wasn't super against it dying if it if it's just what the players did. Reward the players for their actions. If they if they did something crazy to just nuke a, a white dragon, they deserve a reward, right? Uh they recreate they create the world with you like any GM. You gotta let that happen. Like listening to it, like my initial reaction is, oh, that's so not good. But like then I thought I was like, oh, wait, I've totally done this before. (laughs) Sometimes things die faster than you expect them to. And you're like, "Mm, well, they they just got the advanced template (laughs) thrown on top of them. I've had monsters go into the negatives before. I'd be like, I was like, well, I want it to look like a threat. I don't want it to just die in one round. Right. And again, as long as you're not trying to kill the players with it, like, oh, well, he hasn't killed anyone yet. There's no way he's going down until he lands a full-round attack on someone and crits and kills him. I've had things that would have died before they even got to move. I was like, oh, well, you get a little few more hit points. So (laughs) they get a turn now. They get to actually look like they can back up. And you can't do it all the time. And we're not doing it because we're like, oh, no, they're having fun. I hate it. We're trying to help you have more fun. Sometimes it's more fun to have actually enjoy and have the encounter. Once in a while, it is more fun to just let your players nuke a guy. And you're like, wow, you killed him. And everyone kind of celebrates that and they're happy about it. But it's not cool if that's every encounter. So sometimes you kind of have to make those changes. And it's more fun if they get to do the encounter. And that's actually one of my really big philosophies when designing encounters. Not every encounter should be a life and death struggle. That's like the hardest. Sometimes there's a bunch of kobolds and they just stomp all over them. And that happened. You should have fights that you expect the players to just clean wipe every time with no trouble right that's perfectly and fine and there all, should there then, should be some of those and then they all roll natural ones and all the kobolds roll natural 20s <laughs> yeah and <you> the TPK. <laughs> so i want to close out this episode by talking about what is mine and yours favorite encounter ever christian what was your favorite encounter that you ever designed or ran in it pre-made it was actually the first quote-unquote boss battle i ever made um was a butterfly no but boy it was unassuming but boy was it powerful actually level 20 wizard uh <laughs> it, had it was, ador- actu- was actually a god and they spoke to it, it had an and- adorable little spell book <laughs> i actually ended up running this fight twice with two different groups because it ended up being a lot of fun and it spawned one of the a moment i don't think we've ever caught up to yet. oh man yeah um so it was a very legend of zelda type one shot it was kind of like a dungeon you had to get all the keys to the boss room kind of thing okay, okay. and all the encounters were kind of quirky and then they get to the final quote-unquote boss room and first of all they were in a really really old temple and the floor was not solid there was a lot of holes all over the floor they were basically standing on patches of tile and there would be a patch maybe five feet my kitten patches they were standing on my (laughs) yeah (laughs) he was actually the boss i knew it and it was it was a very big room the room was probably like 60 feet long 40 feet wide and there, you know, there's holes everywhere. So if you want to progress across the room, you have to jump across these holes. And I describe like, oh, and there's four big pillars kind of holding everything together in the room. The room's rather dark. And the idea of the encounter is that all the way on the other side of the room is the actual boss, which was like a skeleton warlock kind of thing. And he was in a throne and he was kind of bound to the throne. He couldn't move. So he was sitting on that end of the room shooting spells at people. Then he had a minion, which was an undead manticore that flew down from above and it would fight them. What's a manticore? Uh, Manticore is kind of like the combination of a lion, a scorpion, and a bat. It's a lion with big bat wings and a scorpion tail that shoots stuff out of it. 
Cool. And it was a big undead one of those. So objective being, it was a rather large party, which is why the f- room was so large and there was a lot of aspects to this fight. Uh, the idea was that some people engage the manticore and keep it busy. Other people who had the ability to make the jumps try to jump across the holes in the floor to get to the guy on the other end to fight him. You know, there's some people that had ranged weapons and could do it from either side. Okay. Because everyone had things they were good at. Some people were good at jumping. Some people were good at fighting. Some people had range attacks. Some people had bonuses against undead. That kind of conferred where everyone naturally went. They all quickly talked to each other, said, you go there. We go over here and fight the manticore. We do that. And it ended up being a really good fight. And what actually ended up happening is that because I described the pillars, my players thought they were really important. Oh, no. So what one of my players decided to do was because the manticore was actually ended up being really tough. He's like, I want to, we had, we were using hero points at the time. He's like, I want to spend a hero point and I want to knock the pillar over at the manticore. And the manticore was engaged with another player. And I was like, okay, so if you do that, that is going to put the other player in danger of having a pillar fall on them. And the other player who was fighting the manticore was like, I'm fine with that. Do it. Go, <laughs> go for it. So the barbarian rages, knocks over the pillar at the manticore. I'm like, oh, what am I going to do with this? I had no idea they're going right, to try right, this. Right. So I tell the player who's fighting the manticore, all right, so I told the player who was fighting the manticore, so either you can dive on the platform you are on to try to avoid it, in which case it will probably strike you in some capacity, but you'll remain up here, or you can dive off into the hole in which case it will completely miss you. And he decided to dive off the hole. The manticore got hit by the pillar. It fell down. And I hadn't even planned what was actually going to be at the bottom of the hole. Right, right. So they actually continued fighting. You're coming up with stuff in your head right away, like off the top of your head. It it comes back to that guy's turn who fell down the hole, and I'm like, okay, you hit water, and it's rushing, and you feel something, and the manticore is in the water with you, and it's still thriving. It, It still had a couple hit points left. So instead of trying to kill the manticore, he said, it's like, I want to use my hero point. I want to mount it and fly it up to the back <laughs> to the top. And through a series of godlike rolls and spell casting <laughs> from above, he ended up jumping on the manticore, flying back up and uh, defeating the boss with it. Oh, that's awesome. We, we kind of, the manticores and pillars are kind of memes amongst us now. And you know what? You said some interesting things there. The players had choices and they decide what they wanted to do. Like, you didn't have to jump over and attack. The range guy could have done it, or the range guy could have gone at the manticore, or the guy could have jumped over, or he could have gone at the manticore. Everybody had a, a variety of options. Even though everyone found their place really easy, everyone wasn't forced into a place. Right. The melee guy could have jumped over, or he could have gone after the manticore. It was his choice. And everybody just found natural things that they all synergized and worked well together. Had that fun stuff. You were on top of your game. That sounds like a really mm-hmm. fun encounter. And it's always cool to have those moments that everybody thinks back to, those defining moments that people bring up. And like the best part is that like I didn't have to tell them any of that. I've just described the room. I described the setting. And then they naturally were like, okay, well, we can jump. We're rogues. We're going to go around and try and fight the spellcaster. And the other people were like, we want to take on the manticore. Like, I didn't actually have to spell anything out for them. And no one was pouting like, mm, well, I can't jump over holes. I have a bad acrobatic check. So I'm just going to sit back here and do nothing. Like, right. everyone had something to do. All right, cool. What, what level were they again? They were only level three. That was actually the same goblin thing. Oh. The goblins were before <laughs> they reached the temple. <laughs> That's cool, man. It's awesome that you can make a level three encounter so uh, memorable. Thank you. My favorite encounter was the ultimate finale to my year-long campaign, the one that took like 300 hours to do, uh, and it was uh, the fourth and final god. I've mentioned three of the four they fought. Uh, The last one, Baphomet. Um, the Minotaur God, and in the case of our game, the God of Chaos and the God of Destruction. 
And when they fought him, uh, he he kind of like would take them to different battles that they had fought through the whole year worth of playing Pathfinder. And he would twist them in a little bit certain way. Uh, and in each one, he would become invincible. He would glow purple. And one other creature in the battle from the, the battle that's reflecting an old battle would also grow purple. So until you went and killed that guy... Bahamut was invincible. And Bahamut was like this super big guy. He was a colossal guy, which means he's 60 feet, the six by six guy. Um, He had 300 HP. His AC was 25 with a 20 touch AC. 60 feet movement speed, reflex of 10, 42, 19, wisdom 10. I should mention four player party, each of 14th level. He had, uh, and these were like, these. this is not, you can't find him in the book. I made this up. His, he has a, attacks that were, I'll explain to you why they sound ridiculous in a second, but you're prepared to feel ridiculous. He had an axe swing, which did 46 plus 10 damage and a huge arc. When I mean a huge arc, I mean like I took up like between one eighth and one quarter of the battlefield in front of him. Massive. Like some people might not have been able to spend enough move action to get away. Uh, it was intense. He had an axe strike, which was uh, obviously you just hit one person directly, which was 4d12 plus 10. It, it hit it hit an area. It hit a two by four area. Uh, an axe throw, which was direct damage. It would just target you. Um, it was plus 10, plus 9, plus 8, plus 7. They did 1d6 plus 10 for each one. Uh, one was his hammer, 2d6 plus 10 if it hit you directly. And if, if the hammer hit you, it would knock you back. And if the knockback ended up colliding you into something, you take an additional 1d6 plus 10 damage. All this is like, that seems a little bit crazy for a guy to just do a forward attack and do a bunch of these things. His deal was, while he was invincible, he had to spend uh, the end of his turn choreographing his next attack and uh, and projecting it. So at the at the end of his turn, he would lift his axe and I'd put a little piece of paper. So if he was doing his axe strike, the two by four square, a little two by four white piece of paper, I'd put it over the battle mat and they would all know at the start of his next turn, he's going to strike here. So it gave him time to maneuver, strategize around the battle. So the big axe swing, they'd see, I'd put the big piece of paper down that showed exactly where it would hit and they could move out of the way. But, um, even the one that they could not avoid was obviously the direct hit one, but that did less damage and was less likely to hit. And he still choreographed it. They knew he was going to do it at the end of his turn. Um, and so if they killed the dude who was glowing purple, Bahamut would now be vulnerable. And he no longer had to choreograph his attack. You wouldn't know what he was going to do next turn. And so you just had to do some damage to him. Once he would take a certain amount of damage, I forget what it was at this point, uh, the battle would change to another battle in our history of playing the game together. But the first battle was the standard battle they had fought before. But the second one, it was different. The second one, they fought like a, a monster that was uh, came out of the wall and would drag himself closer to eventually like try to squash the players as well as try to attack him with his claws and stuff like that. Well, in this, in this alternate encounter... There was the wall monster, and then on the other side was another wall monster, so the room was closing twice as fast, and meanwhile, Bahamut's also there doing his thing. And they had to kill one of the wall monsters that was glowing purple to make Bahamut uh, vulnerable. Uh, The third match, uh, too complicated to explain, but each one did something like this. And the, the, the last recreation he did... They had at one point fought the white dragon I talked about and the red dragon I talked about. They were in an area that was half ice, half fire, and there was both dragons there and Bahamut was there. And they were like, oh no, this is insane. But I told him, I said, no one's glowing purple. They're like, huh? Bahamut sticks out his hands and the white and the red one turn into energy. And now the breath weapon of both those dragons, Bahamut had in each of his hands. So the dragons weren't there. He didn't have to fight him anymore. But he had like uh, the ice blast. It did 14d4 and it slowed uh, players for 1d4 rounds. 
Uh, it was a DC 22 reflex, and you can reuse it just like any dragon, 1d4 rounds. And then his other hand was the fire blast, 14d4, and 2d6 burn, same reflex save. But he had no um, no more invincible shield, and it was just finish, get his HP to zero, and, and kill him. It was fun because you got to revisit a bunch of old encounters with a little bit of twist. Uh, meanwhile, Bahamut was there, and Bahamut was a guy. It was satisfying to fight him because I think from our very first session, Bahamut was a jerk, and he was uh, an antagonist, and it was it was good to finally get that uh catharsis finally get the satisfaction of fighting him and it was epic and it, and it and it allowed players to strategize in ways not only because he's choreographing his attacks but because they had been through those battles before so they knew what they could have done better or ways they could do different things now so they were just able to really strategize and uh and it's my favorite encounter i've ever designed and ran i don't know what it is about the revisiting old encounters mechanic uh, my dm did something similar to that recently i just think it's really fun going back to slightly yeah. changed old encounters nostalgia is so powerful it is yeah oh yeah i forgot to mention when he's invincible not only could he not be hit he technically wasn't invincible he got a plus 99 to his ac touch ac reflex fortitude and wisdom save so i could roll not 20 so if you if you <laughs> figured out some way to get past that uh uh, uh 118 fortitude save you know you could kill him <laughs> you could do something to him but yeah that was fun all right well i hope you guys have learned how to make some interesting and fun encounters uh both the way Pizer does things some of our own custom ways to do things in our extra credit episode we're going to go over uh, a bunch of battles that uh, we didn't, didn't make into this episode, but were just fun or interesting battles, something that you can learn from. So check that out. We're going to end uh, today's episode like we've ended every one of the 200 series with a Buseyism. Our Buseyism today will be war, you know, in celebration of Fallout 4, because war never changes. War, according to Gary Busey, women and religion, the acceptance of truth will end war. Thanks, Gary. We love you. 10 out of 10. Never change Gary ever. Sorry, guys, by the way, if you want to get a printed and signed Gary Buseyism, uh, they're sold out. Christmas season just rocked them all out. Sorry, guys. <laughs> we love you guys so much. Thank you so much for attending. Check out the extra credit after this where we go over some cool other encounters we had in our games and our past history. Thank you all for listening. Class is dismissed. Pathfinder Academy is part of the Trailblazer Network. For other great Pathfinder podcasts, visit our site, tblazer.net. Want to get in touch? You can email us at tblazernetwork at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at tblazernetwork. I've been Nicholas Laborde. Thanks for listening. so I can fulfill my ultimate power fantasies. Guys, so we're all working together equally, and we're all doing it- We are it all working together equally? We're all working together equally. Team, I would like to take a vote. Is our security officer undermining my position as team leader? I didn't know you By were. saying we are all equals. Wait, are you the leader? He is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was my thought earlier when Andrew called him the leader. Here is softly speaking Sanskrit. We know why we roleplay. Why do you roleplay? Softlyspeakingsanskrit.com